Hello, David Oakes here, and welcome back to Trees of Crowd. A few weeks ago, a friend of mine asked me why I hadn't done an episode about flowers and botany for a while. Little did they know that I had this gem from the Eden Project lined up and ready to release it this week. This is one of my all-time favourite interviews. Stick with it to the end and you'll hear me share way too much than I should share in the public realm. Um, anyway, enjoy. This is Dr. Joe Elworthy and this is Trees of Crowd. In the depth of the forest and old oak the pride of the greenwood there. O'er his branches the ivy her mantle threw when the forest boughs were bare. Oh, the oak and the ivy, oh, the oak and the ivy, oh. Hello, I'm David Oakes and welcome to Trees A Crowd. This is a podcast for those of you who, like me, think our natural world is incredible. From those who swim tarns to those who spin yarns, I'm going to get to talk with people dedicated to or inspired by our natural world. In this episode, I've gone travelling again, this time down to Cornwall, our country's southernmost county with over 400 miles of coastline. More sunshine than the rest of the UK combined, producer of creams, clotted, iced and otherwise, but most importantly home to the renowned Eden Project. I'm here to meet Dr Joe Elworthy, the Director of Interpretation here at the Eden Project. Joe has a degree in plant science, a PhD in plant biochemistry. She's written gardening books for both adults and children, produced television shows specialising in botany and horticulture, and has been working at and for the Eden Project since its very beginning. Joe, hello and welcome to Trees of Crowd. Hello. So I'm right in saying that you've been here since day one. Yeah, well, before day one, actually. Before day one. Yeah, yeah. How many days before day one? When, when did, how many days are there before the conception of a biome? It all rolls into one at the moment, but I came down here. I was producing a television series on fruit called Fruity mm-hmm. Stories. I needed somebody interesting growing pineapples or peaches. Mm-hmm. And my researcher came in and said, I found this guy in Cornwall who's growing pineapples at the Lost Gardens of Heligan. Shall I go and see him? And I thought, oh, I quite fancy going to Cornwall. I said, I'll pop down for the weekend. So I popped down, met this guy who was growing pineapples, who was, who'd actually restored the Lost Gardens of Elegant, which okay. I'll tell you about later. It's an amazing place. Sure. And on the wall was a picture of this massive crater. And being a bit nosy, I said, what's that? And he said, I want to tell stories about plants and people, so I'm going to build the biggest greenhouse in the world and put it in a crater in Cornwall and put a rainforest inside it. <laughs> He said, what do you do? I said, I tell stories about plants and people. Um, within a few minutes, he said... Did you say it like that? Yeah, you? I did, sort of a bit like that. And so then I started recounting lots of stories about plants and people so uh-huh. to get him interested. Uh, and then I left, and then a, a few... I don't know if it was a few weeks or months later, one of my kids said, oh, there's a man on the phone called Tim Smith. So I answered the phone. He said, do you want to come and help me set up the Eden Project? Mm-hmm. Um, so... Sold my house, moved to Cornwall. You sold your house? Yeah, moved to Cornwall. And my friends and colleagues at work, I was freelancing TV, and they said, how much is he going to pay you? And I said, he didn't say. And uh, I, didn't, I didn't really ask that question. And who is he? And I said, well, I, I'm not really sure. <laughs> um, and they said, well, what did he say? And I said, he said, would you rather have written on your tombstone? I wish I had, or I'm glad I did. And he did this to about five of us. Uh-huh. So we all came down here. I didn't get paid because he didn't have any money because we hadn't raised the money at that particular point. And coincidentally, I got a phone call from Kew Gardens uh-huh. and they said, oh, you're the woman who makes TV programmes. Would you like to make a video in this video? Do you remember videos? I remember a, videos. A videos of the visitor experience of Kew Gardens. And they said, there's one disadvantage. The TV companies just in Plymouth between Devon and Cornwall. Sure. In Devon, but on the internet. Which was, which was ideal. So I so worked... So you got paid by Q. Got paid by the TV company down here, went to Q, had a fantastic time at Q for a mm. year, learned all about the history of Q. Hello, Robin. There's a Robin right next to your head. Yes. Having a little sing. They're very cheeky. Cause they, they, they're they, upstaging they, you. Yeah, so well, we're outside in the cafe, Eden, so he's just waiting for us to have a cake or oh, something. yeah. Last time I was here, I had an amazing cake. Come to the Eden Project, the cakes are great. Yes. There you go, there's Love, a sound bite. Look, Robin doesn't eat it. <laughs> so you were sort of, you were doing extracurricular activities to fund your creation of paradise here? Yes, yes, but it that was like research. more fortuitous in the world. But it was like research at Kew. Sure. Um, and Kew's fantastic and had a really interesting time learning about the history of Kew. And, and it's got so much history, and this didn't have any history. Sure. 
because it was it was starting something completely different. It's also sort of redefining what it is to be a botanical gardens. I mean, the glass houses at Kew are astounding. Yeah. Um, especially the temperate house, which has just been redone up and is beautiful. But the biomes that I can see behind your head couldn't be more different if they tried. No. Biome is short for biological dome? It's, it means an ecological environment with everything in it. So we've got a humid tropics biome, which is called rainforest, Mediterranean biome, which is warm temperate. Sure. And then we've got the outdoor biome. But we changed the name of that to outdoor gardens. Sure, OK. Because it's a biome without... It wasn't inverted, it's the crater of the old mine that was here originally. Yeah, so it was, it's 15 metres, this, it was an inverted mine. So if you imagine a pyramid upside down, mm-hmm. there was no soil... It was 15 metres below the water table, had no stable sides, no level surfaces at all. And the first time I came down here, we drove down with hard hats on in this truck into this crater, Uh which was like something out of James Bond film. And talking of films, I had the Jurassic Park music in the back of my head. Sure. And there was this, this group of people, and they said, we're going to put the biggest greenhouse in the world there, and we're going to put a fully grown rainforest inside it, and we're going to put the Mediterranean over there, and we're going to create a whole new visitor destination and have a million visitors a year here, here in Cornwall. And half of me thought, this is, this is nuts. Mm-hmm. And the other half of me thought... Where's the Brachiosaurus? You know, <laughs> yeah, what's going what's to happen? And uh, it was just a ridiculous idea. So, I mean, I've got a million questions. How long... So the, the Eden Project opened um, on the eve of the millennium, basically. Yes. So it's been around for 19 years yes. now. When did you come here humming the Jurassic Park theme to yourself? Oh, God, I can't remember. Were we talking five, ten 95, years before? 95, okay. 96. Well, that's a pretty rapid turnaround oh, from huge. a pit with nothing to what is here now. Huge. So we had to get some money. Um, so Tim... And the an architect he was working with, Jonathan Ball, they went to London and pitched to the Millennium Commission, which is a lottery. Sure, sure. Well, um, they were trying to work out whether what they were going to do, I guess, at the time. There's the Dome in London, obviously, yeah. and a whole load of different projects around the regions. And Yeah, and you could pitch for this, this idea to raise your eyes to the 21st century. So sure. we thought this was quite a good idea. So they popped up there and pitched this amazing idea, and there were three categories. A, go build it. Uh-huh. B, it's a really interesting idea, but you don't know what you're doing. Go and work it up a bit more uh-huh. and see, get lost. Any idea which we got? You got the top one. No, you got the get lost, didn't you? We got the get lost, yeah. Yeah, of course you did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so they came back and, you know, we said, how did you get on? How did you get on? And I said, uh, well, it was a sort of... Maybe it's Just got to do a little bit more work. Sure. Um, and then went back and they said to the guys, we're going we're gonna to do it anyway. It's really, really important to show that you can transform things, that you can leave things better than you found them, uh-huh. that not everything has to be dereliction, because this, this was a china clay pit which had sure. reached the end of its useful life. And then it's just gone. It's just a dead space. And we needed to regenerate the region because the industry was, was a challenge. There, there was environmental problems zooming up the agenda, and mm-hmm. we wanted to demonstrate, not just talk about it, Especially but demonstrate it. that you can leave the world better than you found it and what better than to build a and grow a rainforest well indeed so you said there were uh, five of you that came down at that stage was that when director of interpretation as a role was manufactured no like... I had so many different names I don't know what <laughs> is director of interpretation your favorite um, did you did you choose it no I don't know what it would be I don't I can't think of a job title which describes what this is okay um, so what do you do I'm like <laughs> A television producer, but here okay. in a static place. So instead of seeing your program appear on the screen and never see the audience, mm-hmm. you see the audience every single day. You look into their eyes. You can talk to them. It's incredible. Sounds like theatre. It's fun. Oh, maybe yes, it is. It's called a living theatre of plants and people. So it is like theatre. Yeah. So I work with really, really fortunate, fantastic scientists. So I can ring up the guy who. Professor Richard Betts, who wrote the IPCC report, the climate change mm-hmm. report, who, who wrote it. I can ring him up and say, what's happening with climate today? What is happening in the world today? I can ring up the woman who's in charge of cyanobacteria. More about this later. Sure. Um, well, this is the new installation inside. Yes, we'll, yes, we'll, yes. We'll talk about we'll it talk about that in a moment. moment. Yeah. Uh, so you can, you can ring these people up, and they're amazing, these scientists, because they want to share their stories, and this is their stage. So then I've got a wonderful team of designer makers, graphic designers, even live producers to do live events. 
and wonderful digital team. And then my job is to interpret the science and blah, 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 into a narrative that they can then communicate. There's, I mean, something that I've been coming back to on this podcast time and time again is that link between the natural world and the artistic world and whether it be botanical drawings yeah. from explorers back in the 1700s or um, directors of interpretation of the Eden Project creating events, experiences and installations that best translate the natural world to a new audience. It's the same thing. If people are wondering what the noises are that aren't just Robin's tweeting, it's because paradise takes a little bit of work behind the scenes. Yes. It's, it's 8 <laughs> o'clock in the morning and we're not yet open to the public, which means I'm the only punter here, which is, which is bliss. And there's a lot of gardeners. <laughs> Lots of gardeners going everywhere and a, and a jackhammer in the distance. Yeah. Um, so let's, let's go back to the beginning. Um, you mentioned, obviously, the TV producing that you used to do, but where does it all start? Where did you grow up? What was your childhood like? Uh, I grew up in North Devon on the edge of Exmoor, so really connected with nature there. My parents used to go out for walks every weekend and we used to see red deer on the moor. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't, as a, I remember being very, very young and we were going down this tiny little lane and seeing a massive stag and all the hinds. Mm-hmm. I'm, a, I'm a botanist, I don't know about animals. <laughs> um, jump in front of the car and up the other side. And uh-huh. I was just like, and I remember saying to my father, are they free? As opposed to farmed. Farmed. And so I got really interested in these animals which were, which were free and the moor and the plants and absolutely obsessed with anything to do with nature. Were your parents trying to get you interested? Did they work in the natural world? or No, no. My dad loved gardening. Mm-hmm. Um, so we used to, whenever he gardened, I used to go out, and I'm obsessed with gardening, so I used to go gardening with him. And sure. The one time I remember he, he thought he'd dug up a Roman pot and got terribly overexcited, <laughs> and it was a coconut shell. But <laughs> he, um, I got really involved in the soil and looking under the soil, and he... My parents gave me a sand pit, all with sand in and the little plastic buckets. And I, I remember I dug all the sand out and chucked it away. Strange child. I've forgotten <laughs> about this, actually. And I put all these little shelves in the sand pit and I got all these old jam jars and collected insects and bits of leaves and all sorts of things. And had and your then, own little... Had my own little thing. And, and they always put me in charge of the school nature table. Sure. And we did the seaside one day. So... We, we lived near the near the coast, and I remember going up with this little plastic bucket, which was supposed to be in the sandpit, and collecting all these winkles and everything. This isn't very nice, natural history story. And no, I, put them, I put them in the car to take back to the nature table, because I was very young, and I didn't know it was wrong to take them off the beach. Well, you have to learn somehow, I guess. And we had a, a jag. You know those old jags with the leather seats? That, anyway, we, we, so my dad said, oh, we're going to go for lunch. So we went to lunch, and when we got back to the car, there was no winkles in the bucket. And they'd disappeared. And I didn't... Dear, dear father's dead now, but I never told him. I, I, He's got winkles living in the back of his in, jag. In the back of his jag. So they fall down in that gap between the... Well, they clawed out. Oh. <laughs> that was awful. So um, that was my, you know, s- since that point... This is why you didn't go into malacology I, I, and researching mollusks. You yes, went. no, no I've, I've, I've felt guilty about that ever since, actually. So <laughs> dedicated the rest of my life to, to... Trying to make up to those poor winkles. To make up to those, those poor... Winkles, but it's that awful learning process, isn't it? Yeah. So, but they put me in charge of the nature table, so I was always collecting bits and pieces. Sure. And at school, I was always the one who knew what the hips and the halls and the this and the that were. Mm-hmm. And today, even today, I've got a collection of four leaf clovers today. I've got about 200, 300 four leaf clovers. That you've just five picked up on your journeys? I, I just see them everywhere, so it's just because I look at little things. So, my husband looks at landscapes and big things, and I spend the whole time. Looking on the floor. Looking on the floor at what the beetle's doing or what the... I was talking to a mollusk expert at the Natural History Museum a couple of weeks ago and, again, it's, she find, finds the smaller things fascinating. Yeah. Apologise to her. <laughs> for, the, for the winkles. I know, I'm still feeling <laughs> bad about that. We'll, we'll have a sort of series of these where I put you sort of head to head and you can sort of either apologise or battle out for the importance. Of I was only about six. So what happened then? Where does having the, the 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 table at school with plants and winkles on where does that evolve to? When do you well, go to I, university? Et I was quite good at science at school, and I always wanted to be an artist. Mm-hmm. And all my friends were in the art department. When you get into were you any good at it? I 
did O-level art. I lasted six hours and got thrown out of the class. I thought I had this really good idea, because I had a horse, so I thought I'd do a painting of the horse's head okay. with the ears, and I was riding the horse, and there'd be the landscape behind it, and I thought this was quite... So I, I, it was in my head, and it looked quite good in my head, and I tried to... And my, my brain doesn't attach to my hand, sure. and I couldn't get the painting out on the paper, and everybody around me was sort of creating these things and I was it was getting more and more splodgy in a sort of brown splotchy mess and the art teacher just told me no. out he said you, you, you are not an artist I was devastated and then and then I thought I'd do writing and then the English teacher told me I'd never write a thing and that was you know again crushing and so the you science... went what what profession needs no creativity no ability to write and you became a TV producer <laughs> Yeah, well, uh, but Later the on. science—I found the science really, really easy, and uh-huh. I loved it. I loved biology and chemistry, and I'd spend all my sort of break times fiddling around in the chemistry lab and and making things. So, got pushed into into science, sure. and then did a did my degree in science, and then I did a PhD in science. Was it always biology that was the route? I mean, you need to have basic. Chemistry, it was plant I science. It was plant so science. I got rid of animals straight away because I couldn't dissect anything. Sure. I found it quite objectionable. So, and I was all, all much more interested in how plants worked and it was all due to Dr. Alan Dodge who was a part-time preacher and a part-time botanist. Mm-hmm. And he was my tutor and on the first day at university walked into the room and there was about 200 of us. And he just shouted, he said, stand up! So we all stood up. He said, you're nailed to the ground. I went, what? And he said, OK, you're nailed to the ground, so you want to drink. The water's over there, you can't go and get it. You're hungry, the food's over there, you can't get it. There's a tiger running towards you, you can't move your feet and nail to the ground. You fancy that boy or girl or whatever over there and want a little snuggle? Uh-huh. You can't touch them. He said, plants eat, drink, protect themselves from danger and have sex without moving, and I'm going to spend the next four years telling you how they do it. And then he walked out of the room. I want to study botany all of a sudden. I want to study botany. <laughs> so the next, the next lecture, we were all there with our pens. And your hammers and your nails. <laughs> and the hammers and nails. And it was, it was brilliant. He was brilliant. So he, he turned it all around because plants live with half their bodies in the air and uh-huh. half their bodies in solid material. And they bring all the energy of the sun and turn it into everything for the, for the planet. And they give us all our food and fuels and medicines and materials and everything. So they... I was completely fascinated with how they worked. So started to study... And there was all these different subjects, like biochemistry and physiology and ecology. Uh And what we did as a group was to put them all together. So each of the lecturers worked with each other. So we did this uh, essay once, discussed the advantage and disadvantage of being a tree. And from a botanical point of view and from a biological point of view and from a chemical point of view and Uh all these different points of view. Because it was looking at what is holistic science, looking at all the science joined together and how everything is interconnected. And they didn't used to teach like that. Okay. Because before... So we're in the 80s? Yes, yes. So I go. I always go what off... What university a, were, were a you Bath. At? Bath, okay. Yeah, it was brilliant. So you're still in the West Country? Yeah, and it was it was an industrial university, so you spent six months at university and six months in industry. Mm-hmm. So I spent three periods of six months working as a a plant scientist in the laboratory, and I hated it. Absolutely hated Why it. Why so? Because I knew how they worked, exactly how they worked. They wanted me to make the chemicals that killed them. So I remember saying to this... Do you think that's akin to the dissection that you didn't like with the animals at an earlier age? Possibly. Possibly. It just... Well, I, I, th- I think the whole concept of pesticides is, is ab- abhorrent. Uh-huh. And only because they hurt the plant so in the plant there's this process which goes on and if you put this chemical on it it stops the process uh-huh. and so that's how the plant dies and i said to the one of the scientists senior scientists in this place but if it does that to a plant surely it will do that to an animal and he said that's not your business that's not your problem and i said it is it is my problem because everything everything is connected everything else. So I had this sort of obsession with interconnectedness, which was then, and there was this guy called James Lovelock who lives down in Devon, who's 100 this year. Happy birthday, James. Happy birthday, who came up with the, with the Gaia theory, which is 
a bit too hippie. Yeah, the name was was coined by um, William Golding, who wrote Lord of the Flies. Who was a teacher at my school in Salisbury. Oh, really? And he based Lord of the Flies on the boys in that school. Like, so on I, you? We pride oh, my ourselves God. on being I'm a bit scared. <laughs> conch-bearing warrior boys. Oh, really? Crikey. <laughs> so, sorry, the Gaia. Back. Yeah, so it's a, it's, a, it's a good name because it's Earth Goddess, but it's also a challenging name because it's... It has hippie connotations, and mm. it put a lot of people off the fact that nature's all interconnected. Sure, I think at that time you've got there was um, you, you, Douglas Adams wrote a book about um, Dirk Gently, the Holistic Detective Agency, which is all about holistic crime solving and how everything's interconnected. It's all yeah. about that kind of thing. And he, as a writer, ended up spending a huge amount of time looking at ecology and conservationism and the animals and plant life of this yeah, planet, yeah. realizing that our actions directly relate upon the actions of the environmental world and, and in reverse and how everything is interconnected yeah. and the more you listen to politicians talk the more infuriated you, you get when they don't realise that just because that's the foreign office talking doesn't mean that that doesn't affect the um, department of education or the department of education doesn't affect everybody else I think the more we look at the world as an interconnected mesh of yeah. of survivalism then well that's that's what we do here we had when, when I first started here or when we first opened there was a school group came in, mm-hmm. and I said, "Oh, this is great!" I said, "What are you What are you studying?" And they said, "We're We're doing history, and we're studying the Egyptians. Fantastic!" So I went to the barn and got this plant, held it out, live plant. I said, "What's this?" And they said, "Don't know." I said, "It's green and it's triangular, and it's got this pom pom at the top. Do you know what it is?" And they said. Don't know. I said, well, "What did the Egyptians make paper out of?" And they said, "Papyrus." And I said, "Great." I said, "What does it look like?" And they said, "It's triangular and it's green. And it's got a pom pom at the top." I said, "What's this?" Mm-hmm. And held this plant out in front of them, and they looked at it and they said, "I don't know." And I said, "It's papyrus. You've just told me what it is." Mm-hmm. And they said, "It can't be papyrus because the Egyptians are dead." <laughs> okay. So there's that disconnect, yeah. and that was a real sort of ugh. When I came to the Eden Project for the first time, one of the things I well, one of the many things that I found fascinating was that cross pollination of of art of animalia with the plant. So I was in the rainforest biome, and you could drink uh, little shots of baobab. Yeah, you could have that. You could have it with rum as well, which I thought was yeah, particularly nice. enjoyable. Um, at the same time, you're seeing. Um, some Malaysian partridges running around, yes, which are a natural pesticide to stop the yeah. insects going everywhere. And then you'll find sculptures and pieces of artwork which do not detract from the plant life but augment the reality of it. It's everything, saw, everything is there for a reason, everything informs. It's the most pleasurable educative process that I think I've seen in action for a very long time. Oh, well, you can come back again. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> it's for you. We do work with artists a lot. We made this decision, uh, again, with, two guys, with Pete Hampel and Sue Hill, who were here at the beginning. We made this decision to work with artists because we wanted to emotionally engage people. We didn't want a sign just with text on it. We sure. wanted real visceral emotional engagement and for people to look at the world with new eyes. Mm-hmm. And we, we work with artists to do that. And we're doing a lot more art and installations and sculptures on the site here at Eden. And some really fine artists say that's not art and some say that it is art. And then people say, is Eden an art gallery or is it a botanical garden or is it an educational establishment or is it a visitor destination? And I say yes. (laughs) But it's that, it's the world isn't divided into compartments so why have people tried to divide it all up into compartments when it is all actually one huge it's the eden project thing that's what it is that's what it does so it's difficult to define eden and when people come here they go oh and everybody takes from it what they what they feel is important do you have you found having been here for the last 25 years or so do you do you find that it has changed a great deal Yes and no. It's still got the same purpose. It's about reconnecting people with each other at the living world so they feel reconnected, so they feel that they can, that they're part of it. They feel connected to it and they mm-hmm. see where the tea comes from and the coffee comes from and they, in the cafes they can eat what they've seen growing and sure. they can see papyrus <laughs> growing. And it has evolved because at the beginning 
I write the guidebook every year, which is which is fascinating. I call it the Doomsday Book because it's a sort of record of, of, of where we're at. And in the first year, I was not allowed, mm-hmm. allowed by the horticultural directors to say that humans had caused climate change. That was 20 years ago. And, wow. And so that's completely different than it is today. And then if several years in, we were having, we did a, an exhibition, I think it was with the RHS and uh-huh. the Met Office, and I was writing the leaflet. And halfway through writing this leaflet, we had to rewrite it because suddenly people were saying that climate change was caused by humans. So when I started here, they were not saying that. And carbon dioxide levels were 397 mm-hmm. or whatever. No, they're over. They're over four hundred. So there's been this shift between hence the doomsday book. <laughs> yeah, there's been this huge shift of understanding from the public. There was also a survey done when we first started, not here, but somebody else about biodiversity, and sixty percent of people thought biodiversity was a washing powder. And <laughs> so the public were learning yeah. about here about climate change and about biodiversity loss, but in a po- in a sounds weird in a hopeful way we didn't yes. we didn't start everything saying um doom, 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 doom. here's the rainforest it's all going to be cut down we're all going to die it's like look here's a place that we've completely regenerated we transformed it it is possible to leave things better than you found it join us in this process and let's join us in this process this to a bigger scale yeah so working with a lot of like-minded people it's like taking everything you wanted out of your brain and sharing it with everybody else which is what I mean, it does look a bit I like really the cerebellum or a part of your, your brain in there. It does feel like there's something active and contemplative about this space just through this architectural design, which is glorious. Do you find now that that positivity is still the driving factor of it, or do you think there's a... There's been a huge shift just recently. Yeah. So there was denial of climate change and biodiversity loss, sort of fringe acceptance, major acceptance... And Eden felt like a place to engage with people who were not engaged so much because it wasn't their job mm-hmm. w- with the environment, but helping people understand it's part of everybody's life, all sure. this interconnection stuff. Very recently, in the last year, we've been doing some academic research with a PhD student. And I'll have to say an academic speak because it's, it's how oh, it comes out my head. But he was interviewing people here and he said people were... He was asking them why they came here, and they said it was as a, as a reaffirmation of their belief system because they were coming to Eden because they felt it had hope because it showed positivity, whereas everything they were seeing around them was feeling very negative and very hopeless, and mm-hmm. you couldn't actually make a difference. So people have now started to come here because they feel it's hopeful because it, we're not just a visitor destination. We do projects all over the world. Mm-hmm. And we, as I said earlier, we, we connect with a lot of scientists who are who are really working on the edge. And I honestly feel, in the even in the last six months, year to six months, there has been a huge shift, and everybody seems to have be waking up to wanting to do something about climate change, want to do something about biodiversity loss. And they're coming here and they're going, "What do I do? What do I do?" So instead of connecting people with the living world we're now looking at actually being more proactive and helping to share ideas and things that people can do to to make a difference from what, policy down to individual actions what do you think the one thing is that people could be doing if you were to boil it i've down got to a one list thing. of 20 <laughs> okay there millions i think the most important thing is to care and appreciate everything you've got Everything from the food that you eat to caring where it comes from to not wasting half of it and throwing it away Mm -hmm. to caring about your phone and not like some people dropping them on the phone. Um, You know, some people have got three mobile phones Mm -hmm. and we're doing some work with the Mountain Gorilla Organisation Rwanda at the moment and there's stuff in mobile phones which they're mining and it affects the gorilla. So we're looking at consequences. So best thing is to buy a phone which doesn't have those chemicals in it. But if you keep your... Most people have got three mobile phones because they don't throw them away. Uh-huh. So, so keep your phone for longer. It's about looking after everything. Look after the clothes that you wear, mend them. So appreciation and caring about 
everything. And so you don't then trash the natural world because you don't chuck stuff into it. Do you think... I mean, a lot of people I've been talking to about this have seen advice like that as looking backwards in time, appreciating ways we used to do things in a slightly simpler manner, whether it be darning socks or growing some fruit and veg in the garden or whatever. I think because it seems retrograde, people are reticent to do it. Mm. I think an exciting way to sort of make it seem more current is to see it not as going backwards to old ways, but moving forwards into a more modern, oh, completely. progressive way of living. Yeah, completely. So we've got 25 fleet vans on site and they're all electric and we get all of our electricity from um, wind farms. And oh. that's, that's looking forward. So we're not saying get rid of your car because people don't want to get rid of their car. Sure. It's have one that doesn't cause such a problem. Have one which runs on... Wood power have you know, and that and so new technology is I've really got an really important. Of you driving around in a car with a huge wind turbine. I haven't got one yet, but I'm, <laughs> I want one. I was listening to it on the radio this morning. They were oh, talking they were t- about yeah, on the Today program. They were talking about the cost coming down, and the one thing that stops me getting an electric car at the moment is because of where I live, um, and I'm scared I can't be able to make it to Exeter. <laughs> <laughs> so. In between getting your PhD and starting working for the Eden Project, what happened? Where was that chunk? And how much of that chunk of your life do you think has informed your outlook now? All of it. All of it. Everything. It's all connected together. <laughs> so I left university. I did the PhD. I'm trying to remember now. So I left. I did the PhD. I got a job. That's right. I got Congratulations. A, I got a job looking at why gerberas as cut flowers were having a problem because I, I was studying plant hormones at this point and they were all being a funny flat shape. Uh-huh. You see it sometimes with, yeah, with yeah. plants in nature, they have that sort of squash shape and it's to do with a hormone imbalance in their, in their bodies. So they wanted me to study this. So, um, Who's they? I can't remember who it was, but a research council do you think, of some... Were they funded by some kind of gerbera sales agency? I don't know. Anyway, it doesn't matter because I, I left my previous job on the Friday which I'll come back to mm-hmm. and I started this, this gerbera job on the Monday and on the Saturday before I was due to start I quit because I, I just couldn't I just couldn't do it my poor parents were horrified so I went back to the, my interim job which I just had because I needed something to do when mm-hmm. I. why did. couldn't you do the gerbera job? because it was, it was soul destroying it wasn't doing anything that was connected to looking after the planet and the planet was so awesome I just wanted to do tell people about it empowered. or do I'm completely obsessed with talking to people about the planet so I went back to the job I just was doing as an interim job which mm-hmm. was looking after uh, 16, 17 year old youngsters who'd been expelled from school mm-hmm. or couldn't get a job or it was a youth training scheme you're far too young to remember the youth training scheme a youth training scheme so I had these, had these students and we, they were doing gardening I thought oh this would be fun of course, they weren't hugely keen on gardening. I remember Darren put in a row of carrot seeds, and he was sitting there, and I said, what are you doing? He said, waiting for them to come up. <laughs> he was seriously waiting for them to come up, because he had no experience of the fact that these things take... Well, I mean, I, I remember and watching Green Claws as a kid, which was a TV show where they put a seed inside the giant tree, and then they ran, did a magic water... It's magic. Yeah. yeah. That happens in the rainforest here, it's magic. <laughs> so, and then... And then Horror of horrors, so I had to get them through an exam as well, which is, they weren't making. So the, fir- the first thing in this exam, I had to do photosynthesis. So I said, OK, did you do photosynthesis at school? So no answer. And um, they said, why are you here, miss? And I said, oh, I was going to do this job, but I didn't want to do it, so I quit. Oh, that's cool, miss, that's cool. I said, why are you here? They said, we're cool because we didn't like school. And I said, well, you know, why didn't you like school? Oh, I didn't learn anything, and on went this conversation. So we actually started to have a conversation. And I said, OK, so we're going to do photosynthesis. And, the, and I said, well, what is it? They said, oh, I don't know. And I said, OK, let's start, let's start somewhere else. I'm doing this job with you. And I've got here under slightly false pretenses because I don't know how to teach. I haven't got a clue. I've never done a teaching certificate. So you teach me how to teach you because you're obviously not interested. And they said, all right. So I said, OK, so we're going to do photosynthesis. So I said, um, OK, where should we start? I said, what do you breathe? One of them said air. And I said, well, what in the air do you breathe? And one of them said oxygen. And I said, well, where's it come from? And they said, what do you mean? I said, well, you breathe 20,000 breaths a day and the oxygen's still there in the air mm-hmm. um, the next day. So something's putting it back. So where does it come from? And they went, 
I don't know. I said, well, plants make it. And this kid looked at me and he said something quite rude. He, I'll say rubbish, but he didn't say rubbish. <laughs> so he said something else. You can swear if you'd like. Okay. We'll, well, we'll bleep it out. We'll put in like okay. a... Okay. Well, he, said, he, said, he looked at me and said... And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, plants, how can plants do anything? They're dead. And I said, hang on, you've been through the entire school system and you don't know that plants produce oxygen. And I said, well, they, they capture the energy of the sun and they combine it with the gas you breathe out and water and turn that into sugar, which gives energy to everything on this planet. And they produce oxygen to waste product, which is why you're alive. And, and, you're, and oxygen's really poisonous, so you wear a spacesuit all the time, which is your skin. And they were like... I never knew that. I mm. never knew, and I was and I was really shocked that they'd been through the entire school system and, and not picked that. that up, because it is the most fundamentally important thing known to mankind. So they taught me how to teach. So then I wanted to make it make the world have that similar kind of access. I guess. Yes. So then went into writing books and making TV programs. Did one called Muck and Magic years ago, all about organic gardening, and then. Lots of programs about about it's mainly about gardening, mm-hmm. environmental gardening, and making compost. And do gardens. you do you miss that world? This is the same as that world. Okay. So everybody says, "Oh, you're mad!" When I left London and came down, because I was freelance, so uh-huh. all over the place. And it's just like living in that world here, as you said earlier. It's a theatre. It's like being in a living theatre of, of of plants and people here. So and every day is different. And it's it's as vibrant and as exciting and as stressful mm-hmm. as as being a television producer. Do you think what what do you think of current gardening content on television? I find it really difficult to watch because I edit it in my head all the time. <laughs> so I can't profess to watch uh-huh. many gardening programmes sure. actually. Um I do occasionally watch Monty Don because I just like Monty Don and I like the way he you feel like he's there to, chatting to you yeah. about how to do the garden and how to and how to do that. So I do occasionally watch that. And Arit, my friend, is in doing gardening programs. So I watch her sometimes when she's on. So. It's all about accessibility, I think. It's it's finding someone who can bring you into that world. Yeah. They they way they always say that you never forget your best teacher. Yes, um, Doctor Dodge. You see. There you go. Yeah, it is. Yeah. So I guess this is a good time to talk about what you're doing at, at Eden at the moment. Should we go inside and talk about that? Yes. Let's go inside. You can put in a nice sort of hazy sound effect there. Right, so, Joe, what am I looking at? You're looking at Infinity Blue. She's a nine-metre-high ceramic sculpture. She's just blown a smoke ring at me. Yes, blowing out oxygen, rings of oxygen, mm-hmm. which, which are water vapours, because she's, oh. she's got 32 smoke cannons inside her. She is the shape of a stromatolite, so quite a large, curvy woman, and she represents cyanobacteria, which is one of the world's oldest and most significant mm-hmm. organisms. OK. But nobody, have you heard of cyanobacteria? I have now. Oh. So very few people have ever heard of it. So three billion years ago, a little microbe evolved in the surface of the sea. And you can see the ripples Mm -hmm. on on the ceramic, which represents the ripples in the sea. And it was the first microbe which evolved to use the sun's energy and combine it with water and carbon dioxide and produce oxygen as a waste product. So it put oxygen into the air for the first time ever. And that's what these... Um, the, the vapor, vapor rings represents. Re- represent. So there was no oxygen in our atmosphere. Who designed then. this? You created it? It was designed by Studio Swine, which is a, a couple, a Japanese architect and an, an English fine artist worked together to make it. So what we did is we did a long list of artists and then we did a short list of artists and we had four artists in the short list and spent a day, the way we briefed, our artist isn't to write a brief. We sit and have a conversation mm-hmm. with them about about life. And in this case, the exhibition in this place is called um, Invisible Worlds. And it's all about things which are too small, too big, too vast, too slow, too far away to see. And we started talking about this bacteria which evolved and started to put oxygen in our atmosphere three billion years ago. And the first thing it did, because oxygen's quite poisonous and reactive, mm-hmm. it turned the whole world orange, so the whole world rusted. So all because of the earth's made of iron, so mm-hmm. it suddenly made it rusty. Sure. And when it had rusted, all of the 
iron in the world, it couldn't rust anything else. So it went up into the air and turned the sky blue. So our, our world, which previously had been purple and grey, became orange, orange and, blue. and blue. And then these cyanobacteria started to evolve and get engulfed by other things and form plankton in the sea and mm-hmm. turned from this cyan blue into, into green. And they do this thing called photosynthesis where they get the carbon dioxide and water and sunshine and combine it to trap energy and make sugar and produce oxygen as a waste product. And over the next three billion years, they slowly raised the oxygen level in our air to 21%. So without being cantankerous for the sake of being cantankerous, this is a bacteria, it's not a plant. It's a bacteria. So if you look at a plant, a plant is actually a whole load of bacteria inside of flat things solar panels called leaves so uh, a leaf is a solar panel and inside the solar panel there are lots of cells and inside the cells in some of the cells there's things called chloroplasts which mm-hmm. are the green things and they are the descendants of the cyanobacteria oh, and they guy. breed inside the plant and they move around inside the plant you've got stuff inside you bacteria mm-hmm. that are part of you that breed and move about so you are uh, descended from a microbe there you go when I was here last time, I was in the Invisible You room over there learning about, I think it was demodex mites that live in our eyebrows and, yes. and don't have bums and can't, yes. can't do anything. They just live to eat our eyebrow food and then die up there. Um, how long is this going to be here for? Is it going to be here indefinitely? It's, it's got a... We, when we say permanent, permanent piece of art to us is five years. Okay. So it might be here five to ten years. It's been designed... Um, by the by, Studio Swine, the designers who we chose to be deconstructed at the end of its life and form a reef. So we're going to put it in St Austell Bay. So the holes will have fish and things living in them, and it'll have barnacles and things growing all over it. That's amazing. So it's 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 to go back into the sea. So it's made of ceramic, so that it's can go back to the earth from whence it came. It's got oxide glazes on it. It's a beautiful, shiny, shiny. Uh, cyan blue with, with ripples of dark blue mm-hmm. and, and with that oxygen we couldn't have oxide glazes and when we, when we did our when we pitched to the four artists and her chat to all of them the one thing in the brief we did say is we wanted a, a kinetic sculpture we want something that kids could interact with and adults could interact with them mm-hmm. so these artists came in they were the last to pitch for that day and they came in and they put a little model on the table which just looked like a lump of plasticine which had these sort of two she's very Curvy. Yeah. So curve. It's like the top nodule is a head and then... Yeah, and then, then a curvy, and then down at the hips at the yeah. bottom, which is why I call it a sheath. Um, and it just was there, and I thought, well... And they said, well, this represents cyanobacteria, because nobody's ever heard of it, and it's the most important organism in the world, and it created the whole life to evolve. And I thought, interesting story, but it doesn't do anything. Sure. And then they turned... They had this little wooden box on the table, and they started to turn the handle, and it started to puff out this tiny <laughs> little rings and everybody in the room laughed and we knew that we you had, had a winner a winner i think i had a little toy as a kid which was a little tugboat that you put in the bath that it went pop 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 and, oh, I used to find those. and blew out the little yeah, I used to, rings i used to have those so you put a candle inside it exactly they'd yeah be, they'd be banned there wouldn't they for dangerous yeah. fire in a bath with children <laughs> what could go wrong what possibly go wrong <laughs> no i remember having one of those they were brilliant weren't they I think she's brilliant. I think she's absolutely glorious. And people run around her and they put their head in the rings. rings. And and there's a film which goes with it. There's explanations of it around the building. We're putting more... What we're doing now is we listen to what the public say and then we're answering all their questions along this balustrade where where we're standing. We're going to put little signs. Why is it blue? What do the rings mean? Mm -hmm. And we didn't want to do that until we'd actually understood what people were asking. What people were asking about it. Yeah, yeah. The, the building that we're in as well, as I understand it, was designed to look like a sunflower? Yes. I mean, that's the thing that I love about this. Everything is considered on this site. Everything is responsive to the people and to the environment, both that where it is and what it is representing. So, I mean, the, the I don't know what shape you call it, but the... The roof is supposed to be like all the different seeds radiating out from the centre. Yeah, so a sunflower isn't a flower, it's hundreds of flowers which give up their individuality to create something better together, which is what one of our sort of underlying principles is, is all different people from different places with different skills all come together and we can do something better together. So that's why 
we designed it on this. We, we actually, the, the core building, which is what this building is called, came on board in 2005, so several years after. So when we first started Eden, we put in the rainforest biome, which is massive, mm-hmm. and the Mediterranean biome, and they're all based on the structure of hexagons, mm-hmm. which is a shape you see a lot in nature because it's maximum strength using minimum material. So Billy bees, bees do it. In fact, beer bottles do it. If you drink half a bottle of beer and then shake the bottle, it all forms into hexagons inside it. Oh, okay. Have a look. And bubbles. You've just uh, allowed me to go and have a beer. Yes. Great. <laughs> so so that, that was all based on sort of animal... Ar- and a beer is an animal architecture, but it was based on bees and animal architecture. And there was always a plan to put an education building here. So uh, Tim Smith, who, who is, runs the project said, um, okay, well, you can have your education building and we can have the second biggest greenhouse in the world or we can have the biggest greenhouse in the world and you can go in a tent. <laughs> you know? And I just, I just left my job and sold my house and moved to Cornwall and blah, blah, blah. So I said, oh, okay. Um, Is he always like that? Is he always being deliberately... Oh, awful, yes, <laughs> but wonderful. So he, he challenges people to, to do things. So um, we, we got the biomes in and... We had the biggest greenhouse in the world, which, of course, was the right answer. Mm-hmm. And the education centre went in a tent, which is probably the best thing that could have happened. Because being in a tent and watching the biomes being built, it was like, oh, if you really try, you can do whatever you want. Mm-hmm. So with the architects, who the same architects as designed the biomes, Grimshaws, we sat down with them and we said, um, OK, so we want a building which is the shape of a sunflower, because it isn't a flower. Mm-hmm. It's a collective. It's a collective. We want it to be the size of a spaceship. We want it on three floors with every floor on ground level. We want <laughs> the school's area to be <laughs> visible to the public, but also hidden away from the public so that the children can have their own space. We want the building to be open to the sky in the middle, and we want to put a 75-ton sculpture of a seed representing the shape of nature in the centre of the building. We want it all done in 18 months. <laughs> they were quite excited, and then... And then and then the project director, uh, George Elworthy, who's now my husband, uh, was sent, and I was sent up to London. And he told us not to come back until we'd got the perfect design. So after several iterations of this design, we, we brought back the architects working hard, brought back this design. And he looked at it and he said, yes. So then we had to find some money, because uh, we didn't have any money. Uh-huh. So then we managed to raise another few million from the Millennium Commission to build this building. And when we started Eden completely, what, what um, Tim and the horticulture directors said, because people were saying, well, this is a ridiculous idea. He mm-hmm. said, well, let's get the young people to do it because they don't know it can't be done. <laughs> and I was young then, back then. But, you know. So what Eden does is it likes to demonstrate that what people might think is not possible is, is possible because we have to look after this planet. We have to take she's it She's just got excited. She's, she's going a bit bonkers. So every 15 minutes, she goes off on one. <laughs> We were going to put a soundscape with her, but listen. Because you can hear her breathing. It's like she's sending out spores to the world. Yes. And different people have their own representation of what it is. Some people just think it's fun. Oh, it's glorious. Like she's surrounded by clouds and mist and... And circles that she can put your arms through. They've all. Oh, that was. It's like a firework display. They've all sort of gone off with the big final bang. She completely upstaged you there. She, she was did. obviously getting annoyed with you taking the limelight. Yeah, well, she is the limelight because she is the oxygen producer for the world. So, you must get such a kick out of all of this, having sold your house to come here when there was nothing here, to have, like, gone from tents to sunflowers, to have met your husband here, or as a result of working here. I mean. This, that's incredible. It's just incredible. No, it's been, it's been, it's been an absolutely fantastic journey. You know, I have practically had a nervous breakdown on several occasions and I've stood here weeping uh-huh. with this. So when, just before we had, a, had an opening event, there was 400 people coming. We had to build this, Infinity. We had to build her in nine months. We said to the, 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 the artists, have you ever built anything like this before? And they said no. We had to find somebody. There's, there's, the ceramic tiles on there are metre across. Yeah. And like they're all la- large patio 
paving. Yeah. That, that's the only much the, prettier. Much prettier. That's like much that's prettier the, the most damning paper. description Absolutely. I could have used to describe. Azusa and Alex, if you're listening to this, if, <laughs> you didn't mean it. Went down really to home didn't. base. And um, <laughs> but the last lot that went into the kiln, which were sort of firing in the kiln two weeks before we were due to open, putting an installation in we've never done before, and 450 people coming to the uh-huh. opening, including all the funders, and it exploded in the kiln. Oh, God. <laughs> um, so they had to do another another firing nobody would ever made these smoke cannons before so who funded this the welcome trust and the arts council okay and you have to take risks and it's it is excruciating everybody says oh you're so lucky to work here and it is it's the most fantastic job in the whole world but you have to take risks and it's... You look at this place now and everyone goes, well, of course it existed because everyone needed it to exist. Yeah. But nobody appreciates the huge risk that was taken in those early days to take nothing and make something. Yeah, and that's... That, well, you have to behave like that here because the point is we live on this extraordinary planet. We've got rising carbon dioxide levels. We've got biodiversity lost faster than ever before. And we have to demonstrate that if you do take that risk and you all work together, you, you can do this stuff. You, you, you can do it. So there are three questions that I ask everybody who comes on to the podcast. Uh, the first one is, if you could go for a walk anywhere in the world right now, where would it be? I'm dreadful home bird. I'm just such a home bird. I go to the sea <laughs> near my house and stand there and look at the sea because that's what I do every day. Is this on the south coast of Cornwall or the south north? South coast, yes. Best with your two coast... Well, no, that's Devon's got the two coastlines. Yes. Oh, no, we got two coastlines. Well, they're connected, though, at the point, though, aren't they? Yeah, but if it's, a, if it's a sunny day... If it's raining on the south coast, you go to the north coast because it's sunny there. Mm-hmm. And if it's raining on the north coast, you go to the south coast. So you can choose your coast. So the north coast is wild and the south coast... Is... OK, so, I, yeah, so I like going to the sea. I do like walking around in a rainforest. Mm-hmm which I've done, which is, which is the most extraordinary thing. Do you get to travel with work from here? Used to, used to a lot, yeah. And now ask, get the young ones to do it because they don't know it can't be done. Yeah, so <laughs> I'd rather send all the youngsters off to, to do all the travelling now. But when we, when we started Eden, we went and worked with uh, the Curapacaria tribe in, in Guyana in South America and uh, on the Guyana Shield, which is just north of the Amazon. They don't like it being called the Amazon because it's a slightly different rainforest. Mm-hmm. It's joined, but it is a different plateau. And asked them what stories they wanted us to tell about their culture, because mm-hmm. otherwise it's really rude if you just plop ideas here and there. So we sent people to different parts of the world, to, 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 and we still do, to study the plants of that part of the world and speak to the people that live in that part of the world so we get the stories right and the appropriate stories of, of of what's happening. So, I, no, I do like... Rainforests. Uh, I do love rainforests, and I do love sea. And I went to the desert once, twice. Um, three times a lady. Three times. No, twice. Um, and I thought I wouldn't like it because it didn't have any plants, but it was, oh. it was the most extraordinary place. One of my favourite favor- things I go to see at Kew whenever I'm there are the, the, the little desert plants that look like rocks. Yes. The t- I don't, they must be sort of a cactus family kind of thing or yes. something. But they, they look like bottoms. Yeah, yes. they look little squidgy, yes. squidgy rock bottom yes. things. Yeah, they're amazing. I think they? they're just incredible. Yeah. Yeah. And again, I had the same thing. I went to Joshua Tree National Park relatively recently, about a year ago, and was expecting to be fairly nonplussed. It's just a desert. Why would it be that interesting? But just awe-inspiring. Mm. It, it's, it's the variety of different habitats and the way in which plant life adapts. It's the adaptions, no. So... so wherever there is the tiny, tiniest bit of water or the tiny, tiniest bit of root, the sand will stick to it and then the sand will turn into soil because the plants will... In fact, when, when, we, were in the, when we were in the desert, we went to the top of Mount Sinai and I'm supposed to be a botanist, so stupid. And there was this, there was this little hollow in this dry mountain and it had these little mossy plants in it. I thought this would be a really good place to sleep because it's all soft and nice got a nice sleeping bags and in the middle of the night woke up and we were in three inches of water and it was a dew pond oh, of course down. it was a dew pond <laughs> I've spent my whole life teaching people about you know moss grows in wet places and dew ponds mm-hmm. but I was just it just seemed like a nice place to lie down it's so stupid <laughs> wonderful question two should we colonise the moon no great 
Because there's no botany up there? There's nothing to look no, at? I think I think the most important... I think we should go to the moon. The first people... Was it 63 when the, the, guy, the guy said, when I went to the moon, I turned around and I discovered the Earth? That is the important thing, because he turned around and he saw the Earth for the first time as this ball in space. And there may be some more. But as far as we know, at the moment, it's the only place we can call home. Why, why bother to go to all the trouble to colonise something else? Because I, I get really upset about it. So you've got, you've got the Earth, and what comes into the Earth from outer space? Nothing much. Uh, rays of sunshine? Yeah, sunshine, that's it. What leaves the Earth and goes into outer space? Everything. We lose like, gases, helium's running out, it's our little space still there. shuttles. It's still there on the outside. Floating on the top. Still there, Or do we keep it all here, then? Heat goes out. Heat. So everything else stays right here, so we can't run out of anything if we recycle everything. So if we recycle everything and respect nature and work with it, we, we live on this perfect, perfect ball in space with the most extraordinary set of circumstances that made it so, the Goldilocks effect. It's the right distance from the sun, it's got an iron core, so it's got magnetism, it's got tectonic plates, so it produces food, it's got light, it's got this wonderful coat of gases around it which keep it exactly the right temperature. If we had no carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, it would be minus, I don't know, it would be a ball of ice, Mm -hmm. and it has been a ball of ice in the past, and it might be a ball of ice in the future. But it's just right, so... Yeah, look, go to the moon and have a look, but come back. Were you following the Chinese experiment with the plant that they grew in space? No. They, uh, was it the one upside? I it, know they grow Arabidopsis up in space. They, they, it was, no, they grew it on... I want to say they grew it on the dark side of the moon, but that's not what they did. That was just they related transmission there. But they grew... It, di- it died when basically when the sun went away. But for a moment, they managed to grow an entire plant in space. That's all they did. Because we, we'd sort of based... The guys who built the biomes based it on... Do you remember Silent Running, the film Silent yeah. Running? With Huey, Dewey and Louis. Yeah, um, it's uh, Bruce Dern. Yes. That's a great film. Yeah. I was thinking about the other day... I was reading a book about uh, Biosphere 2. Oh, yes. Um, and that made me think of Bruce Dern being up there alone... Yes. ...with his funny little robots. So we know those guys. OK. So before Eden, I did some work with them, made a video game called biosis <laughs> which is about somebody waking up inside a biome and it was what it was it's a very cult it was a very cult game of its time and the, the biospherians who lived in biosphere 2 helped or did it it was sort of based on their on, the, on their, their experiences biome, really. yeah and last week the guy who made the game actually came to eden 20 years after and we had a conversation and we might make another game oh brilliant yeah so the the, bio, the biosphere guys are are amazing. They they learned so much. Yeah. In those. Oh, in and, those and, domes. and we did it as a result of their. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, amazing. Uh, question three: If you could bring any species back from extinction, what would it be? I want all of them back. <laughs> this is where I have to be Roy Plumley and say, I'm afraid the rules are quite strict. You're only allowed one. I would like to bring back a creature that nobody knows has gone yet, which is probably so important that it will keep us alive. So I want to do something, something microbial, mm-hmm. because we don't know what we don't know, and we can't see 99% of the stuff around us, all these microbes and everything to keep us alive. We don't even know that they're there. Do you think we're going to accidentally kill it and doom ourselves? That's a dark way to... That's <laughs> a dark question, no. I think, if you think of all... You work in television. All the films and the books you see, like Lord of the Rings. Lord of the Rings, perfect example, perfect plot. You know, everything's all la-la-la and lovely, and then there's a problem and somebody gets hold of the wrong ring. So you get a whole load of people, all of who are completely different from each other, and they come together, and in the face of adversity, they solve the problem, Mm -hmm. chuck the ring in the thing, and then it's all lovely again. (laughs) You took a lot of words to tell that story. You did it in (laughs) half a sentence. Chuck the ring in the thing and then we're all done. But all the stories have the same plot, mm-hmm. don't they? It's Joseph Campbell, it's the hero's journey. It's, it's, so, so the human race, because fact always sort of copies fiction, well, I don't know if I'm right now because you get a lot of dystopian films as well, but um, because fact follows fiction, humans have this whole sort of thing about having to get to a crisis point before they do something. They don't think about it earlier. And I'm a human, so I can be rude about myself. You don't think <laughs> about it earlier. You wait until there's a oh, crisis, crisis, and then we have to do something about it. I think if you look at all the stuff that's on TV and in the news and in the media, 
we're in this crisis point now. Mm-hmm. We're not going to have climate change. We've got climate change. We're not going to have biodiversity loss. We've got it. And so people, I feel, are coming together and they will move forward technology and they'll use technology and traditional technology joined together to, and, and sort it out. Is that not just homeostasis? Uh, I mean, going from one extreme to another and only knowing one has to come back to the other extreme in order to respond to the situation we find ourselves in? Possibly, possibly. But if you look at sort of bacterial growth, they, they, it all goes out. I've got bacteria on the brain. But they, they always get up to a point and then I'm they... I'm sure we actually probably do have bacteria We do, on the brain. we do, we do, because they are in our gut and our gut controls our brain. And our gut and our nervous system and our brain are the same system and they're all controlled by microbes. So we are actually being controlled by, by microbes who've things. changed us into this sort of giant robotic thing to keep them happy. Because <laughs> um, everything is all joined together. Well, it's very nice of them to give us consciousness. That was very kind of yeah, them. Yeah, very, very kind of them. But they might, you know, have they, they got were, consciousness? And birds that. have got consciousness. Everything might have consciousness. So I think it will be hopeful and it might go on into a series of... Of, of homeostasis and then circles with tipping points in it or we might die out and the octopuses might take over because they're quite bright they aren't they i one of my recent decisions is not to ever eat octopus ever again because they're so incredibly smart so smart whether it's decorating their homes mm. or there's that film of it coming out of a jar which mm. is turning from the inside just and imitating a place fish when something was coming yeah, I went scuba diving relatively recently and saw octopuses in the world for the first time and saw their adaptive skin and I have no words to describe the respect I have for an octopus. Brain in each leg. I wish I had a brain in each leg. And we don't know this stuff, do we? We're just starting just to... Do. And interestingly, television and the media, like the Attenborough Ocean Programme, the cameraman there are doing research so they got the whales and they realised the whales were actually talking to the dolphins mm-hmm. and so there's so much going on out there we, we so it's it's, it's the most, sea it's, is, she's going off again well I think that's probably our cue to um, <laughs> I, I, before I let you go I want to take I want to go and look at one more special place but I'll just I'll let Infinity Blue have the final word So when we were talking uh, outside originally, I let drop that when I was a child, and I've been ribbed for this on many occasions, when I was a child we didn't have any pets, and so I would often on walks collect moss, take it home, I'd put it on my windowsill and stroke it at night, and would tell everybody that moss was my best friend. Yes. And it transpires that moss is your friend too. Yes, moss is my best friend too. It's, Maybe it's, not my best friend, but my <laughs> almost, almost best friend. It's just nice to meet someone else like me to know that I'm not alone. Yes. Well, it is, it's, it's amazing. It was, the first, it was the first plant to come onto the earth that came out of the sea. And it's, it's not respected enough, so it made all of our soils. And it put the oxygen levels in the atmosphere up to 21%. So if it wasn't for moss, we, we would we be dead. Be so have, you, have you read The Signature of All Things? No, but I think I'm can't about remember. to. can't remember. It's a book, it's a fictional book, but it's all about moss and how beautiful it is and how wonderful it is. I think that's going on my Christmas it's, list. It's a fantastic book. It is fiction, but it's got some amazing, amazing stuff about moss. So but we're now look, in the moss garden? Yes. So how many kinds of mosses are there here? Well, unfortunately, Jake, my moss man, isn't here. But um, oh, I wish about I had a moss 50, man. 60 different sorts, and he knows exactly what every single sort is. And there's mosses, and there's liverworts, and there's hornworts. And they produce these little... There's one over here somewhere. They produce these little reproductive structures which look like tiny little palm trees. Mm-hmm. So they're really sweet. So we've built it at eye level so people can... Just really look at it very, very closely. Eye level for children as well. Eye level for children. Because they're the ones who truly react to moss the right way, as I obviously used yes, to. Yes, We've actually stuck it on with glue, and it doesn't seem to mind the glue. <laughs> is, that, is that something that I'm supposed to know about? Oh, yeah, there's No, glue, special glue. It's glue the gun. stuff you use in your bath to stop it. Oh, like sealant? Sealant, yeah. Which, which, as we all know, always gets really mossy and yes. uh, gets well, mildewy. They, they, they it like it. They, they quite like it. So there's all there's all these different sorts of moss here. It's a nice fern or something down there. And ferns. So this is a garden showing all the first plants. 
the green un- unsung heroes of the earth. I didn't find this garden last time I was here. I did the gallery downstairs because it's yeah. not in the biome. We sort of did the did the gallery and then went straight in into the biomes and then we headed off. Well, we did the garden outside, but we didn't find up here. And there's a tardigrade over there. There's a tardigrade, yes. Do you think you have tardigrades living here? Oh, definitely. We've, 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 we've seen them, so we take them out and we put them in the lab downstairs. The tardigrades are awesome. I, th- I think they're amazing. I think they'll probably be the cure to everything. They probably will. They, they, I think they probably are. I, I'm, I've, I've known about tardigrades for, for years now, and nobody knew, but they've suddenly become very popular. Yes. They appeared in a Marvel film relatively recently, in the Ant-Man films. Oh, did they? Yeah. No, I didn't know that. He, he has a sort of a... And it's Michael Douglas, I think. He gets really small and has a very close encounter with a tardigrade. Well, they've been to outer space, tardigrades. <laughs> they have. They can survive zero gravity. They, they can, can go su- down to zero degrees Kelvin, I think. Yes, yes. Huge amounts of radiation they survive. Yes, they can survive anything. I love the fact that you, you've been professing that you were a botanist, that you don't like animals, and yet we've been talking I about love animals. I love animals. I love animals, but plants are the unsung heroes, you see. So they're the ones that give us our oxygen and all of our food and fuels and medicines and materials, and they support all the plants. <laughs> but I'm recently getting more into microbes because the microbes made the plants. Well, one last question before I let you go and before I go and hide out in the rainforest garden and hope no one ever finds me. In the cloud forest. Yeah, I've got my two-man tent sort of make home <laughs> up there. What do you want to do next? What's your next big thing? If you could do anything here at the Eden Project, what would you want to do? I thought you meant after the Eden after Project. The, they, no, said, no. they said they'd carry me out of Eden in a box as the last one well, my boss I was just throwing up. Biodegradable box, though, surely. What we're doing next is we are looking... I want to do a big exhibit on climate okay. and soil. And I want to make soil as exciting as we've made cyanobacteria. George Monbiot was on the radio two days ago talking about soil and its vitality. Yes, very important. It's down there and it's sucking all the carbon down into it. and Again, it's the living skin of the earth, so good stuff. All made by moss, of course. Yes, moss. Joe, thank you so very much for talking to me. It's been fascinating. Thank you for coming. I've had such a great time. I don't want to go ever. (laughs) I had so much fun in Eden with Joe. You can hear my voice getting a little too giddy towards the end of that interview. So often in the media, we are presented with the negatives of climate change and environmental turmoil that we forget that it is the passion and joy and hope of people like Joe that will keep our planet alive. So thank you to Joe and to all at the Eden Project for letting me in through their doors. That said, the Eden Project is open to you this festive season when it's transformed into a winter wonderland with beautifully lit gardens and a specially commissioned Eden Ensemble playing seasonal music inside the biomes. And from the 30th of November, I believe you'll even get the chance to meet Father Christmas and his elves and obviously the aforementioned Malaysian partridges. As usual, my blog and links to the Eden Project's website and Twitter stream are on our website at treesacrowd.fm. But until then, rewind this episode and listen to it again because Joe is incredible. Thank you for listening. Oh, the 